0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled RCC Clinical Consults, making difficult treatment decisions at the intersection of the data and the real world. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash W-Y-C 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Welcome to an evening of RCC clinical consults, making difficult treatment decisions at the intersection of the data and the real world. Uh, I've got a fantastic panel with me tonight. My name is Monty Palin. I'm a medical oncologist at City of Hope. I have my dear friends, Dave McDermott and Dr. Tian Zhang. I'll introduce them in more detail in just a moment. We're going to talk about adjuvant therapy, lots of movement here in recent months. We're going to go through some of the details with Dr. Zhang. Uh, then we'll discuss first-line recommendations with sort of a hodgepodge of discussions from Dr. Zhang, Dr. McDermott, and myself. And then finally, we'll round things out with a discussion of refractory disease. So a pretty broad range of topics. So I'm going to start by introducing Dr. Tian Zhang, an associate professor at UT Southwestern. Tian?
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Monty. It's an honor to be here um, to talk about uh, localized RCC and adjuvant space with you. It's an extremely packed uh, landscape and um, we've seen multiple trials now read out in the last two months. So um, while we're thinking about perioperative systemic therapies have been successful in other tumor types, we are really um, catching up in, in kidney cancer. And certainly our urology colleagues in the audience know that uh, nephrectomy upfront front um, certainly uh, cures um, the majority of patients with localized disease. However, in high-risk disease, um, we can potentially think about delaying disease-free uh, disease recurrence um, for patients who are uh, at high risk for recurring. Um, So currently um, there are no approved preoperative therapies um, and then two approved therapies of course um, for high risk localized renal cell carcinoma after nephrectomy. This is a busy slide of all the trials that have been reported so far. Um, We'll take you through them one by one. Um, But on the top left, you see PROSPER RCC, which is a perioperative study that uh, our colleague uh, Lauren Harshman uh, um, really championed um, while she was at Dana-Farber. And, you know, thinking about uh, preoperative nivolumab followed by adjuvant nivolumab for a year. Emotion 010 um, on the top right um, with uh, high-risk localized disease, status post nephrectomy, treated with atezolizumab versus placebo. And then um, Checkmate 914 on the bottom right, um, treatment with six months of combination abilimab nivolumab for high-risk disease. Um, and then finally, um, Keno 564, which we'll delve into um, more with um, treatment with adjuvant pembrolizumab uh, versus placebo for a year. So we'll take these one by one. Um, PROSPER trial, um, which was uh, active in the cooperative group settings, SUO, had a huge part in um, accruing patients to this trial. Um, Unfortunately, um, we saw at ESMO this year that um, the the Data Safety Monitoring Committee actually stopped this trial at an interim analysis for futility. And at the median follow-up of about 16 months, there was no difference in recurrence-free survival. Hazard ratio was 0.97. In the adjuvant trial of EMOTION-010, the randomization between atezolizumab with placebo, again, um, with a long uh, median follow-up of um, almost 45 months, um, we also did not see an uh, improvement in disease-free survival. The median DFS here was about 57 months for the uh, atezolizumab-treated patients versus 49 months for the patients treated with placebo. And again, this was not um, a statistically significant hazard ratio, um, right around 0.1%. For Checkmate 914, we saw um, the treatment of ipilimumab and nivolumab in this post-op setting also did not improve disease-free survival. Median follow-up for this trial was right around three years um, with hazard ratio around uh, 0.92, again, um, not uh, benefiting the patients who received treatment um, in the post-op setting. So finally, we come to KEYNOTE 564, which is the only um, trial so far in the adjuvant setting to show a disease-free survival benefit. Um, the uh, 24-month rates here are shown, um, and the hazard ratio was 0.63. These are the most uh, recent follow-up um, presented earlier this year, um, and so um, there was a benefit for a year of pembrolizumab versus placebo in this cohort of high-risk disease. Of the secondary endpoints, the overall survival um, is one that um, uh, many eyes are on, and we're very interested in thinking, um, can we get patients to live longer? We can delay um, disease recurrence, so can we get patients to live longer by treating them with a year of adjuvant treatment? Um, and uh, there's not quite enough events in, in the last follow-up at 30 months um, to show a, a change, although they're starting to. the curves are starting to um, separate now. So um, safety results were in line um, with what we think um, of when we think of uh, giving single agent pembrolizumab to, um, to folks and uh, no clinically meaningful differences in the health reported um, quality of life measurements. There is an active ongoing trial um, currently open, LIGHTSPARK022, in this adjuvant space, um, comparing uh, treatment with um, building on uh, pembrolizumab only uh, with placebo uh, versus pembrolizumab with belzutafen uh, combination. And so um, this is a trial that is ongoing and open for accrual uh, globally, um, again, with a disease-free survival benefit um, as the primary endpoint. So I think when patients come in um, in the adjuvant setting, we share a lot of patients with our urology colleagues. Um, They're often thinking about what is the benefit that might help me. Um, And so I like to think about um, the balance between the benefit to them versus the potential toxicities. And so um, certainly um, a year of pembrolizumab um, may have lower grade 3 and higher toxicities um, can um, delay um, disease recurrence if they're destined to recur, But the extension of overall survival, I think is still a question um, in the benefit category. Um, Of note, though, if they do incur toxicity, immune-mediated toxicities um, can certainly be life-threatening or life-altering. There's a cost to patient and payers um, and also the inconvenience of uh, intravenous treatment every three weeks or every six weeks. So I do think, in part, um, this choice to use adjuvant treatment um, is uh, much uh, um, relied upon uh, for patient preferences and their own priorities, and that um, we cannot model in our clinical trials. So we'll turn it over to you, Monty, with the patient case.
1: Thanks, Tian. That was a great overview and, and really rapid there. And I think we'll have some time now to go through in some detail some of the adjuvant therapy considerations. We're going to do this in the form of a case. Uh, so we're going to imagine Joseph, a 62-year-old gentleman who presents with nausea, fatigue, and some weight loss. You do an abdominal CT. You see the findings on the right-hand side with a 10-centimeter left-sided renal mass. You can see coronal and axial sections there. He undergoes a left-sided radical nephrectomy, and this shows a 10.4-centimeter tumor uh, resected with distal renal vein involved and also invasion of the perinephric fat. Margins are negative, but this is a grade 3 tumor with clear cell histology. There are actually some sarcomatoid features mixed in there. There's no rhabdoid features. There's 5% tumor necrosis, and none of the lymph nodes sampled are actually positive here. This patient recovers well. He actually undergoes post-surgical imaging, which you actually see on the right-hand side over there. Everything's negative. Um, So Tian, based on what you just told us there, what's your discussion going to look like with this patient?
2: Sure. Uh, I think it's a balanced discussion. We talked about the totality of all the trials that have been reported, um, but I think if they're going to choose um, a treatment that might delay um, a disease recurrence, um, we're thinking about what does a year of pembrolizumab mean for that patient. Um, I would note that in the adjuvant setting, often their side effects from treatment are the only side effects they're experiencing, right? So um, the, it's a little bit different than in the metastatic setting where um, patients are experiencing symptoms both from disease as well as treatment. and so. Um, it's really measuring and assessing their own what they bring to um, into the clinic room of their own priorities. Um, do they really need to work? Do they really need to be at home with their kids? Um, and, or, you know, are they like, you know, I want everything possible um, to uh, that you know in 2022 to delay this cancer coming back. And so I'm going to sign up for a year at Pembrolizumab. So that's a conversation I generally have with our patients.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. And Dave, I'm going to flip things around a little bit here. Let's say you get this pathology back and rather than this being a clear cell tumor, it's a papillary kidney cancer. So still some of these high risk features, you know, with the uh, renal vein involvement, some sarcomatoid features ad admixed. What are you going to do in that scenario?
3: So based on the data, which there is very little, if any, for non-clear cell, this patient, I would argue, should be observed. It's not an easy conversation oftentimes when a patient comes primed to receive adjuvant therapy to tell them they're not a good candidate, but there's no proof that it adds much because most most non-clear cell patients were excluded from a variety of these trials, not all, but most. So observation is the standard of care for this person and close watching, close scans.
1: But then Joseph says to you, he actually picked up JCO not long ago and read the results from <laughs> Keynote 427, which is yep. your study looking at non-clear cell and pembrolizumab as single agent up front, 30% response rate. There's activity there, Dr. McDermott. Why won't you give me pembrolizumab? Well,
3: they, y- you are making the argument for why those patients should have been included in the, in the, in the adjuvant study, but they weren't. So I, in my mind, Merck missed an opportunity. We need to go back and study it in those patients.
1: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And I'll, I'll make this even more complex here. So T N, this patient comes in and says, well, gosh, you know, it looks like I had my pathology reviewed and it's chromophobe. Mm. What are you going to do in that context?
2: Gosh, I uh, I have a hard time um, thinking that chromophobe will respond to immunotherapies. And again, lack of data, um, and we should study it further. Um, but. I would think, you know, let's hold off on um, immune treatments in the adjuvant setting um, for chromophobe.
3: But I, I think, Monty, you bring up a very important point, like how can we improve our selection for these trials? And I think as a field, I think we need to move away from tumor size uh, and potentially even histology and focus more on biology. His group was one of the, is I think the first to associate pdl one expression with poor outcome in these patients. And we should be looking at features in the tumor that not only drive biology for bad outcome, but drive biology for response to immune therapies so we can, you know, sort of hone down on the patients most likely so to so benefit. So let's
1: stay on that theme for response to immune therapies. So let's talk about Checkmate 914. I, this was a big shock to me, you know, seeing the data at ESMO this year. You know, why do you think we saw such negative results there? I mean, you, you've demonstrated us time and time again the activity of nevo for metastatic disease. What's different here?
3: Okay, so it's just a hard study to explain of all the four. It's the hardest to explain. I, I think if you asked me a year ago, would IPI add much to NEVO in this setting, I would say, based on what we know, it probably wouldn't add much. Um, and the reason I would have said that is because in melanoma, we did the study of NEVO versus NEVO-IPI, and the curves were superimposable. Sorry about that. Um, but what the 914 what the results suggests is that neither drug is adding much which is hard to explain. One potential explanation is that the patients who got the combo also had, not surprisingly, more side effects, which means fewer doses of therapy and also more steroids. So if you want some explanation, maybe it was the toxicity in that setting that limited the therapy and then limited the efficacy, but that's not a great explanation.
1: Fair enough. And I'm running at time, but I've got to ask you this, Tian. You've poured a lot of time into the cooperative groups. We've spent a lot of time collectively talking about PROSPER, you know, the study of neoadjuvant nivolumab that you'd highlighted in your discussion there. Why was that negative?
2: Oh, it's an interesting question. Well, um, early on, there was a lot of drop-off. Um, so there's some crossover that uh, events that um, looked like uh, progression events um, and uh, disease events that I don't think were quite events. Um, and there were it was a non-blinded study, so maybe people were unhappy with the cohort that they were assigned. Um, and then I think we, the devil's in the details. I do think we need to go back in, fi- figure out um, the patients who might have benefited, um, and think about our disease biology. Um, and really select for those patient population that um, could have a benefit. Um, but that perioperative dose is one dose enough um, and, and is the crossover um, at the heart of uh, the lack of um, benefit. Um, I think uh, time will tell as they go into the data further.
3: Yeah, I agree with Tian. It's a good idea in melanoma. It's a good idea in bladder and lung. It's probably a good idea in kidney cancer. We, probably should, we should just repeat the study and make it tighter. There's a lot of drop-off in that study that probably explains some of the negative results, but uh, it's still a good idea. I
1: agree with both of you guys there. I'm, so I'm actually going to transition back to you, Tian.
2: Great. Yeah, thanks. Let's jump right in. Um, so we're going to th- talk a little bit more about first-line treatment selection. We've gone through um, adjuvant setting, and now we'll go through metastatic kidney cancer. And I'll start us off with the immunotherapy with TKI combinations. Um, so uh, many of you are familiar with the phase three trials that have been done in the first-line metastatic space. Um, most of these um, enroll patients with newly diagnosed clear cell kidney cancer that had metastasized with measurable disease. Uh, no prior treatments and with good performance status. Um, they were stratified for IMDC risk as well as geographic region um, and what access of treatments they had. Um, and these are the three trials that have been reported so far, VEGF-IO combinations. So um, they were all benchmarked against uh, the control cohort of sunitinib alone, and then uh, patients were randomized to either pembrolizumab with exitinib, nivolumab with cabozantinib, or pembrolizumab with uh, lenvatinib. And of note, that trial also had a lenvatinib ever this cohort. Um, as we're looking at Keynote 426, the pembrolizumab-axitinib co- um, trial, uh, this trial did meet its um, early progression-free and overall survival benefit um, uh, endpoints at the median uh, follow-up of over 42 months. Um, we saw the objective responses were about 60% um, for patients treated with axipembro versus about 40% treated with su- uh, sunitinib. Um, progression-free survival you see on the right, and overall survival you see on the left, and both of these at multiple um, data Cutoffs offs um, have been positive, uh, which was all statistically significant. As we look at Checkmate 9-ER, this was the trial um, uh, randomizing patients to nivolumab with cabozantinib um, in the metastatic setting. Again, we see a progression-free survival improvement on the top, an overall survival benefit on the bottom, and um, these hazard ratios were also um, uh, quite statistically significant. And with the extended um, minimum follow-up in this intention-to-treat population, um, our our progression-free survival, overall survival, and objective response rate um, endpoints in um, the secondary endpoints were all uh, sustained. Um, and the final overall survival at the two-year follow-up was about 37 months um, for patients treated with Cabo and uh, Nevo uh, versus uh, 34 months um, for those treated with Sunitinib. Um, So um, we saw this data at ASCO earlier this year of the depth of responses with Nevo and Cabo driving um, uh, how they uh, responded overall. Um, I won't belabor this point except to say that um, the the more patients responded, the better um, uh, progression-free survival and overall survival they had. As we look at CLEAR, this was the the, uh, three-cohort study um, that uh, had Limvatinib and Pembrolizumab uh, benchmarked against Sunitinib. Um, These curves only show the two cohorts of Limvatinib and Pembrolizumab versus Sunitinib. Again, we see improvements in progression-free survival on top and and also overall survival on the bottom. And the objective responses here, um, I I think, are pretty impressive, Um, 71% overall, with complete response rates of 17%, I think the highest that we've seen Um, in any of these VEGF-IO um, trials. Of note, the limbatinib dose here was uh, 20 milligrams. I think uh, Monty will send us a zinger here um, shortly about that. Um, And then as uh, we look at patient-reported outcomes here, uh, clear on the left and Checkmate 9 ER on the right, um, sometimes I do um, associate um, better patient-reported outcomes, um, better quality of life with disease um, uh, control and benefit. Um, But you see here, um, Len Pembro versus Sunitinib. Maybe not so much separation. A little bit more separation between the two curves here um, for Cabozantinib and nivolumab versus um, Sunitinib. So, and then as we're thinking about toxicities and managing um, these overlapping toxicities of immune um, checkpoint um, inhibitor-induced adverse events with um, uh, TKI-induced events, we're often thinking a lot about, um, for the uh, checkpoint inhibitors, um, skin. So, I tell patients um, where the immune system's active is where they'll have toxicity, so on the skin cause rashes, paritis in the GI tract, the diarrhea and nausea, vomiting, and the hepatitis uh, we're coming to see is, um, is quite difficult um, when we're combining treatments. Endocrine toxicities, of course, of th- which the most common is hypothyroidism, 10% or so, and then um, pulmonary, um, in the lungs I tell patients this is more of a rare effect, but when it happens, it can be quite um, severe and potentially life-threatening. So how do we think about managing our adverse events, and particularly the overlap um, when we're giving combination um, IOTKIs? I think that the easiest thing uh, when patients have an event, um, and particularly if they're overlapping and we can't decipher whether it's um, from the TKI or from the immunotherapy, is to hold their um, TKI first, right? So if it's a rash, diarrhea, hepatitis, um, hypothyroidism, um, or encephalitis, we're often the easiest thing to do is have them hold the oral treatment. And then um, in uh, life-threatening circumstances, we will add um, the, um, and, and severe uh, circumstances, we will um, add steroids um, early on um, and um, think through our um, immune-mediated to- adverse event um, toxicity guidelines. There's n- many now um, from ASCO, CITSI, um and ESMO, and NCCC- uh, NCCN um, to help us guide our multiple layers of treatment for these toxicities. And with that, I'll pass it back to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to hand it to Dave in just a second, and I've never been in this situation before. So Tien just handed me back three minutes as the moderator, so I I, think we're going to have a lot of time for really great discussion and dialogue here. Maybe I'll use this as an opportunity to ask one of the questions that popped up from the audience. So you know, I'm seeing this phenomenon a lot in Los Angeles. I don't know if you're seeing the same in Dallas or in Boston. You know, a lot of folks are looking at the clear data, for instance, saying, "Gosh, 71% response rate. I want to do that." with the toxicity considerations and so forth, they're starting with lower doses of lenvatinib 10 milligrams, eight milligrams, et cetera. How do you feel about that? That relates to one of the questions that popped up here.
2: Uh, well, for me, um, I've mostly been um, starting, I mean, the patient who sits in front of us at the very beginning um, of metastatic kidney cancer treatment is probably as fit as they're going to be. So, I do try to uh, start with 20 or with even with 18, um, if possible, um, and, and try to drive that early disease response. Um, I have not so much started at 14 or 10. How about you, Dave?
3: Yeah, no, it's not easy. You can't predict an individual's MTD before you dose them, and you have to be ready to drop the dose, particularly with Lenva, pretty quick. Um, oftentimes, you can dial it back up over over time, but, you know, ideally, these would be dosed at the minimum effective dose, not at the MTD. At some, at some point, it would be great if we dosed them more like thalidomide was dosed, where you start at a lower dose and ramp up. I think there'd be fewer... Dose interruptions, dose continuations, because unfortunately, if you, if you try the 20 milligram approach, patients will feel crappy and then sometimes want to give up, which is not w- w- what you want. So, I, you know, I'm quick to dose reduce if I'm using that combo. It-
1: yeah, and in some ways, I'll just throw in my, my perspective here. You know, I tend to start with Cabo-Nivo up front just because of that development strategy being so different. With Linvatinib, you know, we sort of went from 18 milligrams in the refractory setting up to 20 up front. With Cabo, we sort of backed down from 60 to 40 milligrams, and I find that to be a lot more tolerable. So, you know, taking that approach, I really don't have to necessarily dose-reduce up front. I find that to be quite useful. Um, so I'm going to pass it over to you, Dave, to walk us through IO in the frontline setting.
3: Thank you, Monty. Uh, The (laughs) outcomes for kidney cancer patients were really poor in the metastatic (laughs) setting. And one thing that's improved them is the advent, as you all know, of immune checkpoint blockade, first in the second line, and now moving it up into the first line. That's the big difference in our outcomes. Whether these other drugs, like VEGF or CTLA-4, add much to PD-1 is still, you know, in question in some some ways. And let's talk about the story of PD-1 and CTLA-4. So this is the trial that led to the approval of nivolumab in frontline kidney cancer. In many ways, this trial design is similar to the ones that TN um, just described. Treatment-naive patients, clear cell patients, good performance status. They were stratified based on IMDC risk. One difference, though, is the primary endpoint is focused on the intermediate and poor risk, IMDC criteria. Favorable risk was included, but it wasn't part of the primary endpoint, and that becomes an important thing when you're trying to make decisions in the clinic and trying to interpret the data. And the comparator arm was synitinib. And here is the data. One of the differences between this data set and the ones that Tien um, described is there's more follow-up. Um, so we have at least five-year follow-up in this group of patients, and you're seeing both the intent-to-treat, the intermediate and poor-risk group, which was the primary group, and the favorable-risk group, and you're looking here at overall survival um, in all of those groups. Um, had this been an intent-to-treat population study, which some argued that it should have been, um, you would have seen a clear benefit for overall survival in all patients. Clear benefit for overall survival and intermediate and poor risk. Those curves separate relatively early, and they stay separate. Um, but even in the favorable risk group, initially the Souten group was doing better, um, and now you're seeing some potential crossing of those curves, which will be interesting to follow as we get seven, eight, ten years of, of follow-up. So I think the story here is the late, Benefits of this combination are in some ways more impressive than the early. And one of the issues early is there's some patients who need VEGF blockade, and if they don't get it early on, they might not make it to second-line treatment. So when you're if you're giving someone NevoIP, you have to be thinking: if someone progresses, I'm ready to give the VEGF TKA right away. When this study was done, we were under the impression that there could be some pseudo-progression in patients getting immune therapy. And I think, at least in kidney cancer, most progression is real progression, and you need to move on to vegf otherwise the patients may not make it to second line therapy this is progression free survival once again at 5 years these curves are interesting to me as someone who advocates for immune therapy these are you know flat tails or starting to become sort of plateaus in these tails on these curves which is a sense that the benefit is durable and in some patients durable even after the treatment stopped because some of these patients had to stop treatment because of toxicity for example so you're starting to see that in the intent to treat population, intermediate and poor risk. There looks like there's a plateau. So 30% of patients approximately have not progressed at five years, which is a you know a pretty good number for, um, given our historical. Um, and even in that favorable risk group, you're starting to see benefit. And this gets back to the point about biology versus IMDC risk. Um, there are patients in that favorable risk group who probably do benefit but probably can't get the combo because it's not approved in that group of patients. And that's obviously something we can talk about. That's particularly true outside the US. So as far as follow-up, as far as response data, this is a similar story to what you see in the VEGF story. We do see complete responses. We get excited in the field of immune therapy when we see complete responses because sometimes those are durable off uh, drug, the one issue as far as response rate that I sort of alluded to before is there is a higher primary PD rate for ipinevo, meaning there's a higher percentage of patients whose first response is progression. If you exclude the VEGF then if you include it, so that's something to think about. But the responses are durable. You're seeing that not reached, that NR as far as median duration response for both the intent to treat and the intermediate and poor risk group. So that's an encouraging number. Adverse or events are an issue, Tian went through the adverse events. They are similar. Um, With these drugs, compared whether you're giving VEGF or you're giving CTLA-4, the difference is both the intensity and the frequency is certainly greater, probably two times greater, if you're adding CTLA-4. So you have to have a a team that's comfortable giving the combo um, because you're going to need help managing these patients, particularly early on. But once you have a team that's comfortable managing the side effects with early intervention, they usually can be very successfully uh, managed. Another issue as far as adverse events is, not maybe not surprisingly, they tend to skew early in the early in the regimen when patients are getting both drugs. So early on, when they're in the first three months, for example, where they're getting CTLA4, you see the higher incidence of treatment-related adverse events, the highest incidence of grade three or four adverse events. But interestingly, as patients maybe not surprisingly come off CTLA4 and are just on single agent. The incidence of new adverse events is uncommon, and and grade three and four events are pretty rare. So if you can get the patients through that first three to six months, they they generally do pretty well and are not experiencing new problems, which is probably why quality of life is also good with this combination, because for most of the time, patients are on this regimen. They're just on single-agent PD-1. They're not getting new side effects for the most part, um, and they feel pretty good. Um, particularly compared to the chronic side effects of uh, VEGF. So the intensity is greater when you add CTLA-4, the chronic, um, more annoying side effects are an issue when you're dealing with VEGF. So it depends on your sort of preference. Treatment-free survival is what we call a novel endpoint we're trying to define with immune therapies. As I sort of alluded to, both the good and the bad effects of immune therapy can persist even after the treatment stops. So the good news is with immune therapies, some patients can have remissions. The bad news is some of those side effects can continue even when you stop the drugs. And what this shows, particularly in the light blue areas, that's describing this period of treatment-free survival where patients are not just alive, but they're alive off-drug. So you can see survival is greater in both the intent to treat and intermediate and poor, but treatment-free survival is twice as much in the intermediate and poor risk and three times as much in the favorable risk group. So patients are not just alive, they're more likely to be alive off drug, which is something you can have a conversation with a patient about. You can say, well, the survival is X, treatment-free survival is Y, the risks are greater, Side effect-wise, what would you like to do? And some patients are more willing to take the intense side effects if there's a greater chance of being able to stop drug, and others are not, and others are certainly not appropriate for that intensity. Back to you, Monty.
1: Great. Uh, excellent summary, Dave. A couple of really good questions that rolled in. I take it based on what you just said there, that you would be willing to offer a patient with favorable risk, NEVOIP at be up front. Is that right?
3: I personally do that, but I don't say that usually in front of a microphone because it's not <laughs> except today. well, yeah.
1: <laughs> and Tia, what do you think about that? what What is your conversation like with a favorable risk patient?
2: Uh, it's interesting. We had a conversation earlier that favorable risk disease, I think, is hard because um you know if, if their goals are really to uh, get a complete response? Well, you know, maybe we should think about epiniveau, um, especially for the lack of um, uh, um, sustained adverse events um, and toxicities over the longer term. Um, so we've, I've, I have given it um, off-label for favorable risk disease, but it, it's a conversation with the, um, with the patient.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. And we're not going to address that in these case scenarios. I thought it was worthwhile discussing, but we are going to shift now to an intermediate risk case. So this is Joseph, 62-year-old gentleman, envisioned a similar scenario to previous, okay? So he had this 10-centimeter renal mass that was resected. He undergoes a left-sided radical nephrectomy. He had the pathologic T3 staging, as we saw earlier. So two years elapses now, and he's classified as intermediate risk disease at the time of uh, relapse, in this case with pulmonary nodularities. He has a hemoglobin of 9 a half, KPS of 90% as neutrophils, platelets, and calcium levels are normal. Um, How would you sort of talk through the options for this patient? Tian, maybe we'll start with you.
2: Uh, Sure. I think he has intermediate risk disease for sure with the anemia. And so two lung nodules, I think there's probably time. Um, In my mind, these are the viable patients um, for ipinevo in the frontline setting. Uh, But certainly if he wanted um, a slam dunk option for early disease response, then um, the uh, VEGFIO combinations are certainly options as well.
1: So I, I think this scenario is too easy actually. So I, I think this is something that we all probably know you know, how to address to at least some extent. So I'm going to sort of twist this a little bit, okay? So Dave, yes, sir. You know, let's, say <laughs> let's say this patient did get adjuvant therapy, okay? So you put this patient on adjuvant pembro, and six months into therapy, starts not emerging with just these two little nodules here, but multiple lug nodules that are two to three centimeters in size about six months in. How are you going to manage that patient?
3: So that is a data-free zone, Dr. Paul. <laughs> We need to do trials in that space, but I, in, what you're describing is someone who's gotten a reasonable amount of PD-1 and progressed pretty soon after. That patient is probably PD-1 resistant, refractory, not likely to benefit from PD-1. There's no proof that person's going to benefit from a reinsertion of PD-1, so I would switch to VEGF blockade, um, You know, something like cabozantinib probably in that setting
1: is monotherapy. That makes perfect unless
3: sense. Unless your trial is positive, unless contact three is positive, which we'll talk about later.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Now let me flip that scenario just a teeny bit further. And Dave, I'm going to stick with you. I'm,
3: I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: this patient actually rounds out that full year of pembrolizumab. Okay? Yes, sir. And we're not going to say we've waited two or three years. I think that's a straightforward scenario for rechallenge. Let's say six months passes. Okay, after that patient progresses beyond a year of adjuvant Pembro, and then they start recurring in a relatively rapid fashion, what are you going to do?
3: Uh, That seems pretty similar to the last example. I thought it was six months. Six six months
1: after Pembro this time, not during
3: Pembro. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, well, all right, so it is conceivable that there are some patients who are PD 1 deficient, okay, meaning who need chronic PD 1 blockade. In the original trials of PD-1, um, both Nevo and Pembro, you could only get PD-1 for up to two years and then stopped. Um, some of those patients uh, you know, continued in benefit, even off drug, and some progressed and they had to be re-challenged, and some of those patients benefited. The exact percentages are hard to quote because the studies were really small and only in melanoma do we have a large enough group of those patients to have a sense that if you make it out to two years in response, 90% of those people are still in response. That number is probably less in kidney cancer, and there's probably some patients who can be salvaged. We obviously have to study it, but I would re-challenge in that setting, but I wouldn't expect much, because there's no real data that says, you know, there's a 40% chance of success or an 80% chance. It might help, but I wouldn't, you know... There's no proof that it's going to help. That patient is also probably resistant to PD-1.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Where's that line in the sand for you? Is it during pembrolizumab when you have progression that you might just jump right to that? I mean, your six-month
3: is close. I would prefer, you know, longer. I mean, six-month implies they were benefiting when they were on drug. And when the drug is out of their system, because it has a very long life on your T-cells, it stays there for months, that implies that they're somehow missing it. So I like your six-month cutoff for a re-challenge. But we have to be careful, we need to insist on, how about this, doing trials in that setting, you know, because otherwise we're gonna be giving drugs where there's no clear benefit.
1: Okay, all right. I I threw you some zingers and you uh, threw them back at me. Very good, perfect. Lightly,
3: I I handed that (laughs) to you.
1: Very good, very good. So again, this scenario, too straightforward here, TN. We're going to change it around a little bit, okay? Okay. So this patient recurs, again, not in this fashion with just two small lung nodularities. You know, let's say they have multiple lung nodules, but the histology here is not, in fact, uh, clear cell. It's papillary. So what are you going to treat this patient with?
2: Well, in papillary, um, I think it's important to think about trials, Um, but your trial uh, showed us that it was important to treat these patients with cabozantinib frontline um, more than sunitinib for SWOG 1500, and now we have SWOG 2200 open, so uh, they would be definitely candidates for um, cabozantinib atezolizumab versus cabozantinib in that upfront setting, Um, so I would think about those, um, and if um, they're not uh, close to a, a center that has a SWOG trial open, then Um, certainly thinking about Cabo first.
1: But let's say Joseph goes to The Lancet, reads the data there, you know, and says 23% response rate with cabozantinib, right? But then also pulls up a JCU article for Cabo Atizo and says, wait a minute, there's a 47% response rate here. Dave, what would you do in that setting? Uh, Would you go to doublet therapy up front? Would you stick with singlet therapy with Cabo?
3: I would stick with Cabo, you know, do a larger study. The, it's not. I, I would doubt that Atezo would add much in the salvage setting to pembrolizumab.
1: Okay, very good. We're going to get even tougher over here because we actually have lots of time, thanks to you guys. Um, so we're going to change this to a patient with chromophobe disease. Okay, so Dave, I'm going to stick with you here.
3: Great. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this patient has chromophobe disease that's metastasized to the lungs now. Um, you know, we can keep the other variables the same. This is two years out, but this is more rapid progression that we're seeing here, not you really candidate for oligometastatic therapy. What systemic treatment would you start with there?
3: Uh, Not many studies specifically on chromophobe, and as Tien mentioned before, most of the data we have on chromophobe is small subsets, small slivers from trials like 427 where we treated 10 patients or so with chromophobe and only had one responder. That suggests that chromophobe may be less responsive to immune therapy than papillary, but it would be nice to be able to study that in a larger group, the, the one trial that has probably the best data that I've seen is Tom Hudson's Ev combination in chromophobe, where I think they had like a 40% response rate in um, that, you know, admittedly small, but I think that was much, you know, maybe 40 or 50 patients. I don't, I forget the exact end, but that's something, if I was going to go with targeted therapy, that's what I do when I see those patients. I don't see many of them. They're hard to study, but that's the best data I've
2: seen for that specific histology.
1: Tien, anything to add to that?
2: No, oh, I mean, if it's very small and maybe one lung nodule, maybe we ask for a surgical resection um, because, you know, I think the, the jury is still out. Um, we've had some really cool um, basic science um, come out in the last year. Um, Lisa Henske's group um, have shown us the role of feroptos- feroptosis in this um, setting, um, but I, I don't think that the therapeutics are quite there yet.
1: Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And then last question for you, Dave, and then we'll, we'll move on here. Translocation. So let's say this patient actually has a translocation RCC, again, aggressive disease that's recurred, you know, after two years,
3: what would you be recommending for them? Uh, that's tough. I mean, that's a histology that's probably more common than we realize because we're not mm-hmm. testing enough for it. There's not a lot of great prospective data. There's mostly anecdotes. Uh, at this point, there are some there's some evidence that immune therapy might be active in some of these patients. So there's a, like a case report. A group of patients were treated in France with translocation, and there were a couple of dramatic responses with Ipinevo. These patients that I've seen are, generally tend to be young and pretty desperate, so I would give them Ipinevo first. But I don't know that that's the therapy. Um, we need to do much more with that. You know, there's going to be a talk at this meeting um, from Srini, um, you know, Viswanathan, who's going to use focusing a lot in his lab on that on that histology so hopefully his work, other people's work, will give us a better sense of what, what we should be targeting. But we're sort of in the dark with translocation kidney cancer, unfortunately.
1: Okay, and, and believe it or not, I mean, I'm gonna get back to this case here. We have a little permutation of it. Um, so what what's, we're changing on this slide over here is as opposed to having these small pulmonary metastases that emerge after 24 months. Again, we're gonna envision a scenario here uh, for ease of discussion without adjuvant therapy. Instead of just presenting with these lung metastases, this patient actually has symptomatic bone metastases. So Tien, how does that change your upfront strategy there?
2: Yeah, I think when symptomatic, um, we have to look for early d- disease control first. Um, so my um, option there would be um, to favor a VEGFIO combination. Um, and we know bone metastases has um, increased met expression compared to primary tumors. Um, so for that um, particular scenario, I would be talking about cabozantinib nivolumab um, as, as more of a preferred approach. Um, I think linvatinib p- um, pembrolizumab or axitinib pembrolizumab are also options. Um, and, you know, with axitinib, pembrolizumab, you can maybe um, send cabozantinib in the refractory setting um, as another option. So um, they're all viable options, um, but um, I would probably, for this case, um, do cabo
1: Cabo nevo, uh, Dave, you're looking at these images with the patient in the clinic here. Let's say it's limited to what you're seeing here with these two lesions at L4, these small lung nodules and so forth. What are your thoughts there? Anything else you bring to the table?
3: Uh, no, I think TN gave the right answer, but what we would do
1: is, <laughs> is
3: different, meaning I think we probably radiate the L4, give the patient you know, bisphosphonate, and give them ifinevo. Um The patients we give VEGF PD-1 in the front line are patients who need that response in the first three months or else. This is probably not one of those patients, based on what we know, in the sense that they do symptomatic disease. VEGF makes perfect sense, but they're probably going to make it three months before they have a Complication of their tumor, so they could just get VEGF second line, which is so we would do it differently, but what we do is not what we call by the book.
1: <laughs> Very good. And I said I was going to stick to the slide, but I lied here. So let's envision that this patient, rather than having clear cell histology, has collecting duct here, TN. Okay. Oh, so this is collecting duct renal cell carcinoma, spread to the lungs, spread to the bones over there. What are you going to do?
2: We have a trial for that.
1: Oh, talk to me. Yeah. Talk to me. So
2: the radical trial is enrolling in the Alliance Cooperative Group uh, led by Dr. McKay and her colleagues. And, um, you know, it's cabozantinib with radium and uh, specifically targeting BOMETS. And it allows non clear cell histology, and collecting duct is um, allowed on trial. So I think, you know, we should think about it um, when our patients are symptomatic and they have OMETs and fit the right categories.
1: And and patient says to you, Dave, gosh, I really don't want a clinical trial here. What are you going to treat me with?
3: (laughs) Uh, There's nothing uh, that we know works. Sometimes we treat collecting ducts more like bladder cancer than kidney cancer. Um, So sometimes we give them chemo, but it's not great. So... that patient has a big problem.
1: You guys are completely unstumpable. Okay, very good. (laughs) I'm gonna keep moving here. We're gonna do a quick discussion of triplet therapy now. Um, And this is all really sort of predicated on data that we saw at uh, ESMO 2022. Uh, we have several trials, actually, that are emerging in this triplet space. I guess you could, you know, theoretically call uh, TN's trial pedigree a triplet therapy trial using some permutation of starting with nevo-ipi and then sandwiching in CABO later. There's a triplet trial, LightSparkO12, which is looking at the triplet of lumbatinib, uh, belzutifan, and pembrolizumab. There's also a CTLA-4-containing arm in that trial as well. But the trial that we're going to focus on is COSMIC313, which had just reported out. Um, And in terms of the uh, rationale for that trial, again, we know that there's activity with Cabo-Nevo. We know that there's activity with Nevo-Ipi. Why not sort of merge the two regimens? This was a comparison of Nevo-Ipi with placebo against Nevo-Ipi with Cabo. And what we see here is a significant benefit, the primary endpoint in the trial uh, in progression-free survival hazard ratio 0.73. There was this really curious signal here, and I I am gonna ask you guys for your opinions on this in that intermediate risk population So if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve in the top right-hand side over there, you actually see that the benefit in that intermediate risk group stands out. I would have anticipated that you'd actually see benefit in the poor risk group, uh, but there the Kaplan-Meier curves are more or less overlapping. We haven't seen overall survival data yet from this study. We do have response data here. Um, And, you know, at first blush, when you're looking at the response data here, it's relatively balanced actually between um, the two arms in the trial. But what really sort of stood out to me, there's more patients with tumor reductions in the triplet therapy arm which is up top, but there's more patients with deep responses actually with nevo-ipi and placebo, and I I found that to be pretty curious too. So that was my sort of quick and dirty summary of of the data here. Um, We have to keep in mind this is a really well-done trial that uses a contemporary control arm of nevo-ipi. It's the first study that really compares triplet against doublet, and it certainly met its primary endpoint, but there's a bunch of questions, right? I mean, we don't have the overall survival data yet. Uh, We know that there's a substantial impact using the triplet on toxicity, many discontinuations, steroid utilization for the triplet was essentially double what you would anticipate with Nevo-Ipi. And of course, you know, there's that question around why we didn't see more in terms of response in the context of this study. Um, So with that in mind, just a couple of moments on uh, discussion here regarding what the implications are from Cosmic 313. Um, Dave, I'm sure you've had some time to stew over this. Where does Cabo-Nevo-Ipi sit in our treatment armamentarium now?
3: Uh, well, as you said, the investigators, the sponsor, deserve credit for doing the trial. And if this was in a vacuum, you know, that would be one thing. But it's up against the Cabo Nivo doublet. This triplet has got issues um, both as far as efficacy and toxicity. That The doublet, as you described it, both of you guys described the Cabo nevo is probably easier to give based on, you know, what we've seen toxicity-wise, dose reductions, stopping therapy. And it looks as active. Um, So in that context, it's going to be hard to make an argument we should add IPI to Cabo Nevo unless you see overall survival, as you said, unless those PFS curves that are now separate stay separate. So then you could make the argument that there's a higher plateau when you add, you know, IPI to Cabo Nevo, you know, that kind of thing. So there's, there's data out there that could come in that would suggest the triplet is worth trying, but I'm not sure on which patients. And... I'm not, you know, it's going to be a hard case based on the data that we have now to add IPI to Calvonevo.
1: And just one quick follow-up question on 313. You know, Tian, as you look at the data, there's that curious finding with intermediate risk versus poor risk. Any way that you can rationalize that?
2: Right, you know, we really hope that um, for the poor risk disease, we would have something more, right? If, if um, someone is coming in and they will not see second-line therapy, I'd like to throw everything I have um, that I know to be active. Um, but in the poor risk disease setting, we saw a crossing of that curve. Um, You know, as I'm sitting here stewing and um, thinking about that disease population, um, it is a disease population that um, patients can't afford to stop therapy. And so it, it goes into the toxicity portion of this. Um, there were higher um, transaminase elevations, uh, grade 3, 4 um, hypertension, as well as um, the pancreas, amylase, and lipase elevations. And so with the triplets, um, a lot of dose holds modifications. About 58% of patients um, actually got all four doses of ipi and nevo. Um, And so, you know, I, I think that possibly um, made the, the change in the. That crossing of the curves, those patients really need more dose intensity, um, and they can't afford to stop treatment.
1: Interesting. And I'm going to turn it back over to Dave to round things out with the discussion of refractory disease.
3: Thanks, Monty. Uh, Once again, this is somewhat of a data-free zone in that while we have data in the second and third line, like here with tavozinib, most of this is in the pre-PD-1 as first line era, so we we still need better studies for patients who failed PD-1 up front. So this is the trial that led to the tavozanib being FDA-approved. This was a head-to-head comparison in patients who had received at least two prior therapies. This was tavozanib versus an older standard, Serafinib. And this was a clear win on both uh, PFS and on tolerability uh, for Tavosinib. And one of the interesting things you see about these curves, it's a little bit unusual, is these curves separate but seem to stay separate. So there's a, there seems like a, a subpopulation of patients who are getting a benefit there out at beyond three, maybe even four years. So that's unusual for a heavily pretreated population. And this gets to the question of the impact of survival of tavozinib. Tevozinib had issues with the, in, in the TiVo1 study as it relates to the hazard ratio for overall survival. What we've seen with this data as, as it matures is the overall survival impact seems to be growing. It's not statistically significant, but the hazard ratio for overall survival seems to be improving. And that probably gets to that question, that we, the issue we were talking about before, is that Tavozinib is having an impact in a subset of patients for a long time that may be impacting those patients' survival. What about combinations? Well, tivozinib has been tested in combination with nivolumab, and it looks active, and it looks safe. Uh, Tivozinib is a pretty clean and pretty potent VEGF inhibitor, so it's probably not that surprising that it could be safely given with nivolumab. And the investigators are moving this into a phase three uh, pivotal study of TiVo2 uh, in patients who have seen prior therapy. So this is, you know, going to compare TiVo to TiVo-NeVo. And this will help us get data for that setting of when patients fail PD-1 combination up front, you know, what works, what salvages those patients. Moving on to HIF2-alpha blockade, as many of you know, HIF2-alpha is an important transcription factor that drives most clear-cell kidney cancer. The science behind the importance of of VHL and HIF uh, and VEGF, at least part of that story as it relates to oxygen sensing, actually led to the 2019 Nobel Prize for uh, Dr. Bill Kalin from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. The, this story is only a small part of what led to that Nobel Prize. This is can we target that transcription factor that's important in oxygen sensing, HIF2? Um, and an inhibitor was developed originally by a small company here, I think, in Texas, uh, Peloton, originally with science that came out of UT Southwestern and now has been uh, purchased by Merck and developed. And it looks active once again, in a subset of patients. So this is a completely new target in kidney cancer. Importantly, this is targeting something that's in the tumor. um, And you see a 25% response rate. Interestingly, those responses happen more slowly than we see with VEGF. And they often last a a pretty long time. Um, And the toxicity profile, importantly, is also much cleaner than we see with VEGF. So there are on-target toxicities that you have to learn how to manage, like anemia, for example, which is managed with erythropoietin injections, for example, if it's significant, but very manageable. Same thing with hypoxemia has to be watched for. But all of the other annoying side effects don't happen as much with this drug, which allows it to be given for longer as a single agent, but also in combination. Um, And it's now being tested in a variety of different combinations. And this gets at what I was talking about before. um, Belzutifan in combination with VEGF blockade, in this case of cabozantinib, that seems to increase the response rate, increased progression-free survival, but once again, we need um, randomized data, and so belzutifan is now being compared to cabozantinib. Belzutifan will be combined with lenvatinib and compared to cabozantinib in the second line, so we have both a uh, a late-line trial with belzutifan and a second-line trial. So this could be the next big thing for our patients with kidney cancer. These are those two trials that I mentioned before, one against Everolimus in the salvage setting and one against um head-to-head. So more to come on that. This is also, belzutifan is now also part of some triplet combinations with immune therapy. So we'll, you'll be hearing more and more about that in the next year or two. Several other companies have HIF inhibitors in development. As Monty mentioned before, um, cabozantinib plus a looks active. This is the uh, COSMIC-O21 study with activity, clear activity, and clear cell kidney cancer with this combination. And once again, the question is where do you test it, You know how effective it is in comparison. So that it's, you're going to compare cabozantinib to cabozantinib-tezolizumab in the CONTACT-O3 study. This is also a very important study getting at those questions of can PDL1 salvage a PD1 failure for example you know are there some patients who are PD1 deficient and need chronic uh, PD1 pathway blockade this study will help us get at those answers Back to you, Monty. Um,
1: so we're going to envision that same scenario as we had previously. We're going to picture that patient, Joseph, having gotten nivolumab and ipilimumab in the frontline setting. He actually had a partial response at around the nine-month mark, but at 15 months, he starts developing progression with new and enlarging lung nodules. He develops this two-centimeter nodule within the liver that you can see highlighted on this uh, uh, CT scan image here. Now, Tian, what would you say to this patient in that particular context after just having progressed on nevo
2: Sure. Well, this patient has never seen any of our VEGF um, uh, treatments and targeted therapies. And so um, I'd certainly think that that would be what we reach for. Um, And so we have data from Meteor with um, cabozantinib, not necessarily with IO refractory disease, but I think we extrapolate um, from that patient population. Um, And then also exitinib, we could also um, give a try. And then um, recently we did um, see uh, Joe Lee's um, data from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering with um, um, uh, lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. So if they were like, I really want to stake on my, um, immunotherapy and they had an early response, maybe, um, we think about lenpembro for them as well.
1: That's interesting. I, I want to stay on the theme of lenpembro, Dave, what do you think about that? Uh, would you continue IO in this context?
2: Um, well, do we do it?
3: Yes. Should we do it? Eh, probably okay. <laughs> not. <laughs> Because what's driving the benefit, as Tien said there, and that patient is probably the VEGF, and you're continuing the PD-1 without proven benefit. That's why we need Nevo. That's why we need your CONTACT-3 trial to tell us what to do. So we, we are often doing what Tien described, but there's not proof yet that it's a good idea.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. And Dave, let's say you saw this patient for the first time, but instead of getting Nevo-Ipi up front, he'd gotten Cabo-Nevo in the upfront setting. What are you going to be using in that context, second line?
3: Uh, yeah, I, right, less, less likely to use Ipi salvage, so Nevo-Ipi, although there is actual data on Ipi salvage. It's not great, but there's multiple studies where we've started nevo and then we've added IPI at other time points, and there's probably a 5 to 15% response rate in that setting. So maybe there's an argument that you can make to try Nevo-IPI there as salvage, only if they're not having ongoing tox, because you wouldn't want to amplify that tox by adding IPI. Clinical trials are a good idea for those, for those patients. Those are things I would think about.
1: And what about you? TN in that setting. Um,
2: you know, I, I try to switch out my mechanisms. So, lenvatinib or Limus, I think we have um, data for um, if one site in particular is progressing and not um, not others. We maybe you know think about radiation to that side while we continue. Um, but um, I'm often thinking about how do we use our other alternative strategies.
1: Makes sense. You know, it's it's interesting. If that patient got NEVO up front, you know, Lenev probably comes to the fore for me for second line, but I'm also starting to think about tevazinib in that context. I mean, the patient's gotten a TKI. They've gotten IO. They're frail. You know, perhaps I'll actually throw that in a second line therapy, in fact. Um, But, you know, let's envision a scenario, let's say two, three years from now, Dave. Okay. So the patient goes through IPi they get cabozantinib as their second-line treatment, mm-hmm. okay? And you're in a landscape now where you have an approval for tevazinib, right, in that context, but also maybe you have belzutifan at your disposal, right? What might you choose in that particular context?
3: Um, okay. Um, I mean, the da- data for TiVo is good. So it would in, it depend on the clinical scenario. If that patient was symptomatic, I probably would go with TiVo. Because um, it's more likely to get a response quickly. Uh, if Belsudafan, if the patient was asymptomatic, based on what we know now, let's say the 25% response rate was recapitulated in the pivotal trial, which is you know may not happen, uh, but if it did, uh, you would consider Belsudafan for an asymptomatic patient because, as you just mentioned, those patients are often pretty beat up by you know symptoms and by treatment, and Belsudafan is often an easier drug to transition to. The patients feel much better going from VEGF to HIF. Um, you know, and they they often like the reduction in tox.
1: Fair enough. I'm going to try to see if we can get to one or two of these questions that came up in the chat over here. This first one, which has been lingering in the chat for a while, is actually pretty interesting. So TN runs this fantastic podcast called Checkpoint Now. I listen to it all the time on my commute into work. Um, and, you know, it basically addresses IO-related toxicities. The question from an audience member here is, if a patient couldn't handle steroids, let's, let's envision a scenario of autoimmune hepatitis. Let's say you started them on solumedrol, you know, for grade three or four hepatitis, their blood sugars start going through the roof, you just can't get them under control. What would you do as an alternative to steroids in situations like that?
2: Uh, you know, we, we think a lot about alternatives. So um, for hepatitis in particular, we think a lot about um, uh, celsept, um like phenylate um, mofatil, which is um, one that our um, uh, transplant docs um, like to go to. Um, we think a lot about in refractory colitis, for example, there's a drug called vetalizumab, which is an integrin inhibitor. And so these second-line agents are now, um, uh, we're able to use them. Um, there's also now in um, immune arthritis, um, arthritis um, uh, also immune modulators, um, methotrexate comes to mind, infliximab and others to try to calm down the T-cell activity um, when steroids are, are not, um, you're either running into trouble using high-dose steroids or um, patients just can't handle steroids.
1: Fair enough. Interesting. And, and I, I have to tell you, I thought I came up with some pretty good zingers here, but somebody in the audience deserves an extra brownie or something for this one. This is very good. Dave, I'm going to throw this one at you. Great. <laughs> All right. So so let's envision a landscape where we have an approval for Cabo, Nevo, Hippie. Patient goes on to therapy, progresses. What are you going to offer after that?
3: Um, what would I do after that? Well, uh, I don't know. Lenva, TiVo. I, but... Even if that gets an approval, the use is going to be limited based on what we know now. So that is a hypothetical that Fair enough. may struggle to get to reality.
1: Fair enough. Well, we're, we're in the closing minute here. So I'm going to really offer immense gratitude to Peerview, to all of our sponsors tonight, and of course to Dr. Zhang and Dr. McDermott for putting up with all my crazy questions here from the podium.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash wyc eight six zero. This educational activity is supported by medical education grants from AVEO Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol Myers Squibb, Azi Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, and Merck and Company Incorporated.